1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, the apostle says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, for the sake of trying to keep our train of thought on its rails, and because there were quite a few out last week, there are some out this week, and so we'll continue to, to do this. But I want to review just briefly what we drew out of this passage last Lord's Day, and especially in light of the subject matter, which is unity in the church. One of the ways, and we may discuss this at some point, but one of the ways that a church obtains and maintains unity is by simply sitting and hearing the same sermons together, working our way together through the same passages of Scripture. So we want to make sure that, that we all begin this passage together, that we all end it together, and that we all learn the same things from it. After the opening salutation of the letter and Paul describing his prayer of thanksgiving for the work of God in this church, he goes straight into the first subject, which is unity in the church. We noted first what I called the primary exhortation in the first half or first portion of the verse. In those words, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Though he does not issue a command, in the language and form of a command, we can't open up this passage and say that this word or that word is, is, uh, is, is, conveys the force of a command. He does bring this appeal with the full strength of the person and work of Christ and the love of Christ for His people. And that when, when, when an appeal comes to the people of God in that way, even though it might not be a command, we take it as a command. I learned this with my children, and, and we all have to learn this, that sometimes in our attempt to be kind and loving, we'll say, that's not a good idea, or you probably shouldn't do that. And when they're young, they might go, go through with it. And you'll say, well, I said not to do that. They, then they'll say, well, no, you didn't say not to do that. You said it wasn't a good idea. And you have to explain when mom or dad say that's not a good idea, when they make an appeal like that, what they're saying is, don't do that. Wisdom is saying, don't do that. But we're trying to let you reason for yourself. That's, that's kind of what he's doing here. He makes an appeal. His chief concern, the substance of his exhortation, is that all of you, that is the saints in Corinth, agree. We learn from that the phraseology there that the agreement here is not something that they would harbor inwardly, but that wouldn't show itself outwardly, nor was it an agreement that would just be in a word only. Yeah, we agree, we get along, but inwardly they didn't actually get along. No, it was, it was a full agreement, a, 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 a real, sincere, open agreement. A confessing, we might say. He lovingly urges them, in light of who Christ is, in light of who they are in Christ, that they would sincerely agree. That's the primary exhortation. And then... He goes on to explain precisely what he means using a negation and then a, a positive assertion. Negatively, what he means is that there be no divisions, but that they that you be among or be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The kind of agreement that Paul is aiming at is one in which there are no 
divisions, no schisms, no factions, no cliques, we would say. No smaller groups that sort of separate themselves from the larger body of the church and identify themselves based on a particular preference or belief that cuts them off from the broader body. Positively, he urges that they be united in mind and judgment. The word united there, and this is important, the word united means to restore to a state of usefulness. To put something back to the way it should be so that it can be used in the way that it was meant to be used, like nets that have been broken. The reason that you mend nets is so that you can use them as a net. Restore it to usefulness. That's what the word here means. To put it back so that it can be used properly. And they are to be mended or united in mind and judgment, in their thinking and in their suppositions. They're to be working alongside uh, each other with the same truth in their, in their, in their uh, minds and then using that to bring them to the same conclusions. And we observed then that, that from the very outset, from the start... Paul considers it of chief importance that this church work toward unity rather than division. And we, we summarized then the doctrine for us in this way. We said, well, yeah, that's what he's saying to Corinth. But what is he saying to us? Well, essentially, the exact same thing comes down to us. And I put it in these words. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church, obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Because of sin, we, we all naturally spurn the very idea of unity. Because of sin, we would be utterly delighted to spend our days seeking our own interests and, and ignoring the interests of others. But because of what God has done for us, uniting us together through the cross of Jesus Christ and by giving us His Holy Spirit, we are now capable, we can and we should, take seriously the biblical call to cultivate, nourish, and maintain unity, especially in the church. Especially in the church. So that's the, that's, that's the review. So then we come today to the next step. I want to take the, this concept of church unity and open it up a little further. I mentioned last week that there are, when it comes to unity, there are many questions regarding unity that we, we need to answer if we're going to give ourselves to it. Not the least of which is, what is this unity? What exactly is it that we're talking about? What, what does God prescribed for His people? What should we expect the Holy Spirit to do in a people? What is it that was purchased with the blood of Christ and when He laid down His life for His bride? What is it that we're talking about when we say unity? I think we're all aware that there are a lot of people in a lot of pulpits who would cry out the need for unity. Cries for unity abound in what we would say, what we might call professing Christianity. 
But when we examine them, we know that most of what's being referred to, most of what's being sought after has nothing to do with biblical Christianity at all. Early in the history of the church, you would have what we now call the ecumenical councils where Christians would come together for the sake of truth to confirm and and clarify and unite truth in the face of error. We called them ecumenical councils. But nowadays, if you use the word ecumenism, well, that's, that, that's something that we often run away from. It sounds like a dirty word. Modern ecumenism sees unity as the prize even if we have to sacrifice truth. See how, how we've distorted it. Historically, let's aim at truth even if that means dividing from people. Now, let's unite with everyone, even if that means setting aside truth. So, and that's a lot of what people are crying out after when, when they talk about unity. We need to be clear about what we're talking about. I, I don't want to go through this, this idea of unity and it just come across like this lovey-dovey, mushy-gushy, let's all get along and be happy with each other type of, of, of concept. Let's, let's, can't we just be nice and everybody... Uh, get along, and, and th- that's not what I want. That, and that's actually been a, a sort of a fear of mine going into this is, is that, that we might come out of it thinking that way, or it, it might come across that way. It needs to be built on firm, solid uh, convictions that the Word of God necessitates obtaining and maintaining unity, and that that be our primary and consistent labor. So that's what I want to do. I want to begin to answer the question, what is unity? I wanted to complete the answer today, but I've just got more material than, than is appropriate. So this will be sort of the first part in, in answering the question, what is unity? And I've entitled this answer, A pip- Picture of Biblical Church Unity. A Picture of Biblical Church Unity. I want to give you a definition that I came up with. And then I want to use the Bible to show you why I think that's a good definition, why it's something that we should uh, shoot for. In other words, I want to hang up my own target and then use the Bible to show you why that's a good target, why we should all shoot at it, and why it's, it's what I believe God would have us to aspire after. So here's my definition of unity. Unity is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony flowing naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. I'll say it again. There are many parts. Unity is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony that will naturally flow from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. Because with this is broken up, I want to try to put it all back together in the form of a sermon, exposition, doctrine, opening up the doctrine. Paul has urged the saints in Corinth toward unity. Therefore, we, we discern or we deduce from that. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Okay, And when we say unity, what we are referring to as the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony which will flow naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. 
And now I want to open up the definition. Uh, I've tried to choose all of those words carefully, so I want to open it up and explain why I've used those words. And there, there are essentially six parts to this definition. This unity that we're talking about is corporate. This unity is a pursuit. This unity is doctrinal. This unity is practical. This unity is harmonious. And this unity has its source in spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. And we could break those three down too and make it uh, eight instead of six, but six main parts. So now let's walk through this. Number one, this unity is corporate. It's corporate. The unity in question is one which should exist among the members of a particular local church. A particular local church. And we noted last week from the passage that Paul is not addressing people who have altogether abandoned the assembly, nor is he addressing people who said, for whatever reason, we need to leave this assembly and go to another assembly where we can worship in good conscience. That's not what he's talking about. He's addressing schisms within a particular local church. These people are divided, and yet the division is within the bounds of their church. In chapter 1, verse 2, he references them, refers to them as the church of God that is in Corinth. In chapter 12, verse 27, he'll say, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In chapter 11, verse 18, and and elsewhere in that chapter, he says, when you come together as a church, he's issuing this epistle to a specific, particular congregation in the city of Corinth, a, a particular assembly, a local church. In light of that, we need to be clear that what we have in mind with regard to unity in this study, what I'm talking about, is also confined to that same context, the local church. Here, I'm not talking about the broader, what we might call church Catholic or church universal. We talked about that before, the Catholicity of the church, that there is a unity and an agreement amongst true Christians from the beginning to the end. But here, we're drilling down even further because that's what the context of this, this uh, statement is, this, this appeal. It's a local church. To put it another way, this unity which must occupy our primary and consistent labors is not taking into consideration the fact that there are other Christians in other churches with whom we may also seek unity. That's true. That's good. That's secondary. That's not what we're talking about here. And and that doesn't mean that that broader unity amongst Christians in different churches or different churches together, I'm not saying that's not important. Again, I'm just saying that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is here not urging the saints in Corinth that they need to now be united with the saints in Philippi. Not that they shouldn't. I think it's clear from the New Testament epistles that he was expecting all of the Christian churches to believe and practice the same way. That that was understood. But that's not what he's saying here. Now, the question is, why is that an important distinction to make? Well, while we may and do have dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches, ultimately the fact that we are in different churches 
just that fact alone, lowers the urgency with regard to unity, even if it's just a little bit. It's, it's a little bit lower on our, if we want to call it our urgency scale. We're not quite so obligated to other churches and people outside of our church as we are with those inside of our local church. Uh, differences amongst believers are not near as cataclysmic if those believers are not in the same church. We can differ with other believers throughout the week all day long and we can discuss and we can debate and we can say at the end of the day, we can say, hey, we just have to agree to disagree on certain things. But then when we come into the assembly, those very disagreements won't work in a church, in a a singular local church. We're going beyond that. Uh, We know this to be true in other spheres like in our homes and in our nation. In the home, we we might get word that there is uh, something happening at somebody else's house. And we might be concerned that uh, that there's trouble at somebody else's house. But my first preeminent obligation is to what's happening in my own house. It's the same with our nation. We, We understand this, I think, fairly well. Other nations might have trouble, might have unrest. And we, we can be concerned without the obligation to go involve ourselves with every civil unrest in every other nation. It, 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 that's perfectly acceptable to say, hey, we're concerned, we hate that that's happening, but that's really not our place. We're going to let you handle that. And, and, and at the same time, that, ty- that same type of unrest would need to be handled in our own nation. See, we, we understand this, it, and it's the same, I, I believe, in local churches. When it comes to looking outside of our own congregation, it's, we're not saying we're, we have no concern, we don't care what's happening in other churches. I hope that we do. And I'm also not saying that, in theory, every Christian in every local church anywhere in the world should all be working towards absolute agreement in doctrine and practice. If we're all working from the same book, the only reason we're not there yet is because we're not glorified yet. But that, that is a goal. It's something that we should see as good. But our primary and consistent labors have to be focused more closely at home, first and foremost. We start here. Also, the existence of different churches proves this fact. It proves that we all understand this to be the case. This is the reason why you all are here and not somewhere else and why the people who are other places are there and not here. There's a reason why right now you all are here when truth be told, I'm guessing every family in this room could get in their cars right now, drive for 10 minutes and all of us be at different churches. There's a reason why we've chosen not to do that, but we've decided to come here. And very often the reason is differences of opinion on matters which we would all agree are not salvific in nature. Think about the things like the process of church membership. I think we could all name maybe people we know or know of, good godly Christian brothers and sisters who are in churches that have a different practice with regard to admitting members into, uh, into the church than we do. Okay, Paul's appeal here does not pressure us 
to go to them and try to come to an agreement on this issue. We've got to fix this. I mean, we heard y'all do this and we do this. That just won't work. We've got to get, let's just sit down at the table and, and, and work this out. That's not, I don't think any of us feel like we're obligated to do that. This might be even more controversial. We believe, we know personally, good godly Christian brothers and sisters who hold to a dispensational rather than a covenantal view of the Scriptures. I don't think Paul's appeal here obliges us or puts a a heavy burden on us as individual Christians or as a church to go labor for unity with them. Although, privately, if you know them, you might have these conversations. But at the end of the day, if you shake hands and agree to disagree and go your separate ways, there's always the comfort of knowing on the Lord's Day when I gather with my congregation, there will be a unity around these things that I don't have with other people. We understand this. And I think it would be an undue burden placed on the, Christ, the, the shoulders of every Christian to suggest that, we, that though we have all already joined ourselves to different churches, that it must be among our primary and consistent labors to seek doctrinal and practical unity with other churches, knowing that the very reason we don't go to those churches is because of doctrinal and practical differences. You go there, I'll go here. And once we get separated, let's spend the rest of our lives trying to unite over the very thing we, the, the things that are differing, the, the differences we have. Hopefully you see, we, we understand this. This is not going beyond our, our, our practical lives as we live as Christians. But the fact that we have, we in this room, the fact that we have all in providence and according to doctrinal and practical convictions, joined ourselves together in this particular church, since that has happened, now there is a greater burden on all of our shoulders to pursue unity with one another in this church that that goes beyond what we would expect or what the burden we would bear outside of our congregation. In other words, the areas of agreement and unity in a local church or I could say in addition to that, the areas of agreement and unity in a local church will also be more than or beyond what we would expect to see in the broader church Catholic amongst all Christians everywhere. Again, this is just common sense if you think about it. Take, for example, something as simple as service times. To be a member of this church, you must agree to be at this place or wherever this church gathers on the Lord's Day at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. That's when we have our services. Two services. This congregation has two services. And barring something unplanned or providence, whatever it might be, this is not saying there's never a reason to miss. What I'm saying is, to be a member of this church, you've already agreed we will be there at the stated meetings for worship. Now, someone might say, well, can't a person be a born-again Christian and be of the opinion that, or, or the desire to worship at, at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Or, or maybe only at 11 a.m. and then they take the rest of the Lord's Day off? Can, can, a, can a true Christian have those convictions? The answer is Absolutely. And we would pray that those people find a church where they can live out those convictions. 
this is not that place. We, we understand that. It, it's a part of the agreement. The, the point I'm making is, and a lot of people, what I'm trying to get you to see is, we know this in theory, but then when you say it out loud, people act like it's crazy. There is more required to church membership than there is to be regenerate. What, what, what is required to be regenerated? You've got to be a sinner. That's, a, that's all that's needed for God to save someone is that they are a sinner. And He acts upon them to bring them to new life. But to be a church member, you've got to go beyond that and say, in addition to being born again, I agree to being at the stated meetings of this particular church. I agree to this and that. that. Those types of things bring us together as a local church. The idea that a local church can survive when, when the membership requirements are merely only, well, we just, you just got to be a Christian. Well, that doesn't work for very long. There has to be something more than that. And again, we all know that to be the case practically. Every local church assumes and requires things like this and expects the members of that church will be united, will be in agreement on those things. We all expect that. And hopefully nobody says, you're just expecting too much. I, I can't believe that you're expecting me to do the things that this church does. We would say, well, in, in, in all fairness, if you don't like what this church does, maybe this church is not the church for you. And there are other churches and you can be a Christian and still be a part of those churches. But what we're talking about is unity within a particular local church. As a local church and to be a member of this church, there are things required that actually take us beyond the unity that we might have with brothers and sisters in other churches. So it's not universal. It's local in its uh, description. This unity is local. It requires more of us. The corporate nature of this unity also implies that all of the parts of the body are united. Corporate or corpus, that's a reference to a human body. We are the body of Christ. Bodies have parts, individual parts. To say that this unity is corporate means it's body-wide. No one's left out. No one's given a pass. Everyone who is a member of this church is expected to pursue this unity. Matthew 18 is often referred to as the ecclesiastical discourse because Christ gives specific instructions on how we are to relate to one another. I think... Sure, broadly, as all Christians, but even more specifically, especially when it comes to church discipline, it can only apply to those in a local congregation. In that chapter, he makes statements like this, Matthew 18, 14. He says, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's showing there his concern for every individual member. There are no throwaway members in Christ church. And I, I think it's safe to say that we should all mimic that same concern. Our pursuit of unity must encompass all of the members of this congregation. We should be from time to time, and maybe this, you, you don't have to stop and actively do this, but it will catch your attention. But from time to time, we might ask ourselves, who have I not spent time with lately in our congregation? Is there someone in our church that I feel distant from? If you, were, if you have been out sick lately, you know you might miss a week or two weeks and you come back and you say, I feel like I haven't been here in a year. I feel like I haven't seen you people. 
Well, the same could be true if you're here every week, but there are certain ones that you just don't talk to. And if you think about it, if you just think in your minds, you would say, I feel like I don't even know that person. When was the last time I had a conversation with that person? Well, the only reason you would not do that is if you think that there are some throwaway members in the church. There are some members that are not really of a concern to me. Or maybe I'm not of a concern to them. We shouldn't have the attitude of negligence with regard to any single member of the church. To go back to the, the story of a sheep wandering off, if, if I see a, a member of our church wandering, straying in some way, doctrine or practice, and I say to myself, eh, let them go. More than likely I'm only saying that because they're not a part of my group. If they were a little closer to my group, well, then I would be concerned. But, eh, they're not really a part of my group, my faction, my, my clique. And, and cliques, you understand, people throw out this accusation all the time. And a lot of times it might be true and sometimes it might not be true. Oh, that church, they're just a bunch of cliques over there. That, again, it may be true, it may not be true. A lot of times we might think that the only way that you know cliques is from school. You know, certain people sat at this table, certain people hung out here, these people hung out in in this area, these people hung out here. That's how you know where all the cliques are because you could visibly see them. Well, in a small church, in a small building, you're probably not going to visibly see the cliques. We're all crammed in here. But the cliques will manifest themselves in attitudes like this. I haven't talked to so-and-so in a while, or maybe ever, and I don't really care. So... We can't have that attitude. It has to be all-inclusive. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, coming at this text from a little bit of a different angle, which one of us gets to stand up and say, that doesn't apply to me? He's not talking to me there. Or which one of us gets to say, I know that person over there, they shouldn't be restored. If, they, if they're caught in a transgression, just let them go. Not, not that one. He wasn't talking about that type of person. Uh, hopefully none of us would have the gall to say that. We would all read this and we would understand the implication is that any individual member of the church caught in any transgression, should be, we, we should seek restoration. And every other member, if they are the ones who, if they are involved at least a little or they they get involved, at least should feel an obligation on their shoulders to seek that restoration in some sense, to be a part of that restoration. The whole body, every part is expected to participate. Again, James chapter 5. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Who are we to say, I hear what you're saying, but there are particular brothers, particular that, that sister there, if she wanders, I'm not bringing them back. No, I'm not interested in that. She'll be fine on her own. She knows the way back. Or, who are we to say, if someone is wondering, yes, yeah, somebody should bring them back, but not me. I'm not responsible for that. James wasn't talking to me. He was talking to somebody else. No, no, hopefully none of us would say that or read any text of Scripture that way. 
Well, that applies to them and not me. When we read these statements, we understand that each and every one of us is to take, take it to heart and apply it. It has some relevance to me. Every member of the body bears the burden of aiming at unity, repairing breaches in all circumstances, inasmuch as it lies with them so to do. Again, when it comes to issues like church discipline, there are times when things are kept privately. Maybe a lot of people don't know about certain steps. That doesn't mean that we immediately call everyone, but we should all at least feel this obligation that if any member of this congregation is in any way drifting or wandering or caught, that every other member, I as a member, have an obligation to them, at least in theory, to try to see them restored. We all seek for this. Back to Matthew 18, verse 15, with regard to church discipline. Christ says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. Now who is the brother in this situation? The brother, we could say, is a fellow church member. Well, who are you in this situation? You would be a fellow church member with him. You've got two church members here. And the goal at this point is gaining your brother, repairing the breach, obtaining and maintaining unity. Now, which of us, again, wants to stand up and say, well, I'm not obligated to take that pathway to that goal. I don't, I don't need to go to him or her. I don't need to try to gain my brother or sister. That, he wasn't talking to people like me. He was talking to people like so-and-so. I'm excluded. Hopefully, again, none of us would say that. None of us would exclude ourselves. We would all read that and say, as providence leads, uh, leads us along, I have the obligation as a church member to every other church member to go through these processes or to be subject to these processes in order to be brought back in. It's exhaustive. It's body-wide. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among your primary and consistent labors as a church member. It's corporate. It's local. Greater burdens to a broader unity are expected in particular congregations. And that when I say broader unity, that might be a confusing, maybe tighter unity. We sh a local church and the members of that church should be tighter than that church and another church or even the individual members of two separate churches. There's, there's, there's an obligation laid upon us because, at least because, we've covenanted ourselves together to certain things. Though we do long for the day when this unity will be complete and universal in scope, when all of the effects of sin upon our hearts and minds are immediately erased by the first sight of the Lord Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. And though we will and do and can find a lot of unity amongst brothers and sisters in other churches, the unity that we're considering here is perhaps the most crucial of all, and that is the unity that exists in a particular congregation amongst particular people who worship together, pray together, sing together, eat together. Our children are growing up together. We're sharing each other's homes. We're sharing meals together. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't like where the idea of doing life together comes from. That's, but th that's really what it is. That, that's what happens in a church. That's, so there has to be more. I'm looking out a, a, a few weeks from now, whenever we get to some of these more practical things, our children are growing up together. 
if you've got a different idea of biblical courtship than I have, we're going to have some trouble. If your son comes to my daughter or if my son comes to your daughter, etc., we're going to have some trouble because we didn't clarify what do we agree about this stuff. How are we going to do this? And somebody might say, well, you know, you can be a born-again Christian and actually do this several different ways. Hey, I, I agree perfectly. That, that's, that, that is true. But don't come and talk to my daughter again because this is what we do. There has to be an agreement here. The, things like that, that we, we understand they're not salvific. They're, they're not top-tier primary issues. But in a local church, if we want unity, certain things have to be considered, thought through, and, and applied. Um, I was watching one of the, the lectures from the Puritan Conference where one of, I forget the man's name, but it was, it was, he was talking about how the Puritans were, were very biblical people and even in areas that we would, we would uh, consider areas that the Bible doesn't really address or maybe it's not very clear, that they would still work very hard to bring all biblical wisdom together to produce a way of going about things that in our day people would say, well, the Bible doesn't really address that. The Puritans would say, I beg to differ. If the Bible doesn't address it, then we're just clueless on how to do things. So they would, they would put it all together and work with it. And somebody came to him and they said, you're just too precise. And he said, well, I serve a precise God. That, that's, that's the goal is we want to honor God. And, and sometimes that leads us to go beyond chapter and verse theology. I can't give you a chapter and verse. I can give you 17 verses and three chapters and a narrative and six proverbs. And when I put it all together, my conscience is held that this is the way we ought to do this. It, but it, it takes work. And that's why, as we're going to see, the next point is this unity is a pursuit. It's labor. The unity in question is one in which in this age exists only as an ongoing pursuit. Or, or stated negatively, this unity is not to be thought of in terms of achievement, but in terms of pursuit. It's a pursuit. It's something we're after. We're chasing it. Now, why do I say that? First, the Bible is clear that none of us in this life will be without sin. James 3.2 says, We all stumble in many ways. He's talking about Christians. Many ways, many areas, we all stumble. The fall has affected our minds and our hearts and our bodies. That's why we call it total depravity. The whole of man is corrupted by sin. And as believers, we still retain the effects of the fall, the effects of sin, in all of these areas. And so it, it would be very easy, and some people will say things like this. Well, you know, the, the, the Word of God is clear. I just don't see why we can't all just agree. Well, the Bible is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The Bible is inerrant. We can all raise our hands and say, I am not inerrant. I am not certain, sufficient, and infallible. What we have are uh, fallen men coming to infallible revelation. That's, where the, that's why there are differences. Nobody's perfect. None of us have a, a full or complete and, and absolutely right understanding of all that God has revealed of Himself and what He requires of us. None of us have achieved the right understanding and application of all revealed truth to our own lives. And even if 
there might be one of us who has, well, the rest of us are struggling. And even if we could all attain to this in this life, as soon as we did, I would, I would fall, I would waver, I would, I would mess up, or the Lord would bring us a new person who had not yet attained, and we would have to continue to labor, continue this pursuit. Because none of us as individuals has attained unity even within his own self, according to the Word of God and the application of it, then attaining perfect unity in a group is not possible in this life. It's a pursuit. Rather, the Scriptures are clear that this unity is something that we are aiming at. It's not a prize that we will actually attain in its fullest sense and we have it and we've got it. It's something we aim at. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. He says, speaking of Christ, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I believe it's clear that when he uses phrases like unity of the faith, unity of knowledge, mature manhood, the fullness of Christ, these things are, are to be understood as that which will not be attained until we're glorified. And what he's saying is the preaching and teaching offices have been given to the church to serve these purposes until then. When that day comes, when we all reach the fullness, when we attain to the unity, well then those offices will be no more. Calvin commenting on that passage, he says, the expression coming together, or that word unity of the faith, denotes that closest union to which we still aspire and which we shall never reach until this garment of the flesh, which is always accompanied by some remains of ignorance and weakness, shall have been laid aside. In other words, again, it, this is something that we will have in glory. As long as we're in this flesh, we, won't, we will not attain to the fullness of this. It's a pursuit. It's an endeavor. It's a process. And so we should not say, well, since that we don't have absolute perfect unity, well, then we don't have unity at all because that's not what we're talking about. Instead, we understand, like all of sanctification in the Christian life, that it's ongoing. It's progressive. That is the thing. There is definitive sanctification, but there is also progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification, we, we look at it and we say, well, it's a progress. It's, it's, it's something that's, that's always working and moving along. That's it. That is the thing. Uh, when, when, when that stops, you don't call it sanctification anymore. Some people have called it uh, uh, full or complete sanctification, but typically we refer to it as glorification. We, we've, we're done at that point. Sanctification is the process. It's the same here. Unity is the pursuit. To illustrate it another way, runners are not said to be running a race together only because they cross the finish line at the exact same time. The runners run the race even though they might all be at different places. They're all, but they're all moving in the same direction. And we, they would say, yeah, I, I ran a race with those people. We all ran the race together. The unity is in the process of running. It's in the pursuit of the finish line. It's the same with this unity. It's a pursuit. It's a goal something we're working towards. 
Now, one implication of that is it helps us to adjust our expectations. Should we expect absolute perfect unity or all is lost? I don't think we should. Should we expect an ongoing pursuit of unity? And I think the answer is yes. That's what we should be after. To put it another way, we must be unified in our pursuit of unity. We're running together. And there might be some who are further back and some who are at the front. There might be a big gaggle of people in the middle that are all running. And, but, but we're all moving that direction together. We're pursuing it together. Not that we have all attained or will attain, but that we are all agreed that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Hopefully by the end of all this, we'll all agree, yes, obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Let's do it. So the question is, are we aiming at unity? Are we working toward it? Or might there be some who have really no desire for it? You say, I come to church, I'm here. Here for the morning service, here for the evening service. What, what more can you expect out of me? What is there? Or, or I don't really care for anything more. I come to, to participate in, in that and I'm done. Well, those would be the ones that we have to seek after and exhort them to join the rest of us in pursuing this unity. So it's corporate, it's a pursuit. This unity is a corporate pursuit, a church-wide, all-inclusive work in progress. And then thirdly, this is the last one we'll cover today, this unity is doctrinal. It's doctrinal. Doctrine is that which is taught. The doctrine is the teaching. In Christianity, when we refer to doctrine, we're talking about that which is taught in the Bible. The teaching of the Bible. Now more specifically, when we talk about doctrine in comparison to practice or or, uh, practical matters or application, the doctrine here would be non-negotiable Objective truths, or we, 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 men used to refer to them as dogmas, non-negotiable objective truths taught in the Bible that must be believed if somebody is going to call themselves a Christian. The doctrine, for example, the oneness of God. There's only one God. If you believe in three gods, you're not a Christian. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what else you say, you say, I think there are three gods you're outside of Christianity. That's a a non-negotiable objective truth taught in the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity. That there is a a tri-unity of persons in this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that, that each of these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one God. Well, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. You're outside of the Christian faith. You say, I believe the Father is God, but the Son, He's a created being, uh, the Spirit is, is just sort of a, a, uh, an impulse or a, a, a feeling that comes within us, but not God. Well, you're not a Christian. That's an, an, an objective, non-negotiable truth. When it comes to the, the, the nature or the dual nature of Christ, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the one God of the Bible, but also true man, two natures in one person... If you, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. With regard to Christ, the virgin birth, 
His sinless life, His death as a substitute for sinners, enduring and taking into His own body the, the just recompense for the sins of His people so that that wrath is taken away from them and they are blessed. Uh, and His subsequent resurrection from the dead. If you don't believe in those things, you're not a Christian. These are things that we believe. I would add to that the inspiration of Scripture. If you don't believe the, 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 the Scriptures or the Word of God, you're outside of the bounds of Christianity. Uh, justification by faith is a, is a non-negotiable objective truth. And th- that's just a few. that We call these doctrines, things that the Bible teaches, that we believe. If you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. And when I say that church unity must be doctrinal, I mean that the unity in question is centered around these non-negotiable objective truths from the Bible, and I want to add to that, as they have been understood and articulated in the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church. And the reason I put it that way is because there are a lot of people who would say, yeah, I believe in justification by faith alone. What do you mean by faith? Well, what I mean is your belief in God and then the, the practical works of your life that come from that. That's not what faith is. That's not what we're talking about. That's a difference. So that's why I say the way that it has been understood and articulated in the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church, uh, there must be agreement in doctrine. There is no room for variation in these doctrines. Now why do I say this? First, we know that the Scriptures do present us with objective truth. The Bible doesn't just give us a, a, a foggy mist of general spiritual ideas that we can't really nail down as to the actual meaning and teaching of them. Jesus, praying to His Father, said in John 17, 17, Your Word is truth. Your Word is truth. What the Bible says and teaches is objective, non-negotiable truth. Adhering to scriptural truth is also non-negotiable to Christianity. In Isaiah 8.20 we learn that the prophet says that if men will not speak according to the Word of God, it's because they have no dawn. In other words if they will not bring themselves under submission to what God has said in His Word, that alone is enough to say they don't even have the slightest inkling of spiritual light. If they depart from the testimony of God's Word, they are not Christians. To be a Christian implies a a basic submission to the teaching and the truth of God's Word. Word. We might even say the first and most basic evidence of regeneration is submission to the Scriptures as the very Word of God written. I would, I would even come back before that. Imagine a person who's never seen a Bible and they're hearing the Gospel preached to them from a person who's not even holding a Bible. They've never even seen a copy of the Scriptures. But the Gospel is proclaimed as it is in the Scriptures And the Spirit of God uses that to regenerate that person. What is the very first sign that we know that person has been born again? They take the truth out of that person's mouth 
and they bring themselves underneath it. They submit to it. They are convinced and convicted what this person is saying is true. They've not even seen a Bible yet. But the truth of what the Bible teaches, the truth of God's Word is already over them and they have brought themselves beneath it. That's, that is essential and basic to Christianity. Add to this what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.5 that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, it is the job of the church, the assembly of Christians, to uphold the truth of God's Word. To be a Christian requires submission to God's Word. To be a Christian church requires upholding God's Word. Surely then we would agree if we're going to be united as a Christian church, then at the very least we have to be united in our understanding of the teaching of God's Word. There can be no unity where in a church where some people believe in one God, but... There's a few over here that believe there are three gods. We've got no unity. We might agree on where is the best place to, to buy groceries, but there's no, no spiritual Christian unity among us. There's no unity where some might believe that Christ endured in Himself the punishment for sinners for their salvation, but others believe that He died as a martyr, setting for us a really good example of a pretty much a humanistic example of brotherly love that we, we should be willing to sacrifice ourselves for, for, in love for our fellow man. We don't have unity here. You believe a different gospel than I believe. There can be no unity where some believe we're justified by faith through what Christ has done alone and others believe that God looks at our faith, but He also brings in some of our works to bear to, to justify us in His sight, to declare us righteous in His sight. We don't have unity there because that is a, an objective, non-negotiable truth. Truth which is revealed from God and received by faith is so central to Christianity that any unity where we have to set aside doctrine can't be called Christian. When Christ came, it said that He came full of grace and truth. It is the truth which sets us free. God said that He's seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Christ said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. He said that He came to bear witness to the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Biblical preaching is an open statement of the truth. The gospel is referred to as the word of truth. The belt which holds together our entire armor as Christians is the belt of truth. Christians are those who have come to know the truth, believe the truth, and love the truth. The scriptures are called the word of truth. And in the Bible, to be a Christian is synonymous with this phrase, of the truth. This is how we know that we are of the truth, Christians. It is utterly essential to Christianity, truth. You cannot separate them. There is no Christianity where there are no objective, non-negotiable doctrines that are believed. And that goes for the entirety of Christianity. How much more should that apply in a particular church? We're just going to come together and leave all of our beliefs up in the air. Who knows what anybody believes? That doesn't really matter. We don't believe that. We have a confession of faith. We all read it. We've studied it. We've taught through it. We know that that's not true. We have to be 
gathered around the truth. One example we see of this unity is in the people of Berea in Acts chapter 17. Luke says, now these Jews, this is Acts 16.11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So we we see there obviously there was a a devotion and a submission to the Scriptures. But uh, think about this passage from a little bit of a different angle. I didn't come up with this. I, I, I heard it, saw it. From a little bit of a different angle. We're often told you need to be a Berean. You need to be a Berean. And when we hear that, what we typically imagine the person saying is, yes, you're right, I need to listen to a sermon, and then we all should scurry off into our, into our houses with our Bibles and read it and, and, and make sure the sermon was correct, and then maybe in that place decide for ourselves, yes, it was true. Or maybe at, at, even better than that, we might come together and say, well, I believe that it, this was true and I believe this was false. And, and you know that I'm not against personal study of the Bible, but we're, we're told very often you need to be a Berean, yet not, most of us probably can't name a Berean. Sopater was a Berean. I only know that because in, in looking up and studying this passage. But the Bereans are not presented to us as a bunch of individuals, all just who happen to be there, Paul preaches and they all run home and they get out their Schuyler Quintels and they start trying to figure out, let me make sure that what he said... No, that's not what was happening. The Bereans did not have their own copies of the Scriptures to run home to. What's my point? They, plural, received the Word. They, plural, were in that plurality examining the Scriptures daily. And that that examining is a plural verb. It implies all of them together. Again, they did not scatter and run home to their Bibles. They sat there listening and as a group examined the Scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And Luke refers to this as that which made them more noble. Their nobility as an assembly was in their willingness... To gather together. To receive the Word with all eagerness together. To examine the Scriptures together. Now why does that matter if everybody just gets to decide what's right and wrong in his own mind? It wouldn't. That that wouldn't be noble at all. That would be foolish for them to waste that time. They were united around the Scriptures. The Scriptures were their agreed upon standard. It would not have been strange amongst these people to say to hear someone say, we believe this. Or, it wouldn't have been odd to hear perhaps a young believer amongst this group to come in and say, hey, what do we believe about this? And to expect that the older and learned ones would say, well, we believe this. And to show them from the Scriptures. And it would have been accepted. If that's what we believe, that's what we believe. Nowhere in the history of Christianity or in the history of Revelation in general has God ever encouraged His people or or promoted this idea that we have to all wander off in isolation 
and, and aim merely at personal acquaintance with revealed truth. Not that we should not be personally acquainted with revealed truth, but that's not the end of it. That's never been the thing. As I've said many times, the fact that we all have our own copy of the Bible, that's, that's a fairly uh, new thing. And globally, it's not even true still today for a lot of people. That wasn't what, what the way truth came out. Truth was, has always been disseminated and studied and confessed corporately among the people of God. Christian unity is, which is one that brings all the church members together in constant orbit around the revealed truth of God's Word. Remember also that Jude appealed to his audience in Jude 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One singular body of truth, the faith, delivered once to all of the saints. they got to contend for it. I think an application from that would be, we should contend for the faith. Now, you cannot contend for what you cannot define. You can't defend a city if you don't know where its walls start and stop. You have to be able to define the truth so that you can contend for it. He's assuming that there is a faith. And we have to be able to answer the question, what is it that we believe? In passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 16 and Nehemiah 8, 6 that we read this morning providentially, we see the use of this term, Amen. Amen. The corporate Amen. What is that? Is that just where somebody lets other people know they're emotionally stirred up? Like that, you know, that, that person finally fizzled up to the top and it came out in a... They boiled to the top and it came out in a... I'm in! Is, is that what that means? No, it's not what it means. It was a, it's a verbal affirmation of the truth. With the amen or amen or, or whatever variation we might have, we, we will also accept... Uh, yeah, yep, right, true, that's right, things like that, affirmations. With that idea that the Bible brings to us, everybody in the assembly has the opportunity to participate in the proclamation and affirmation of the truth. When we take the Lord's Supper, what do we say? As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. We could also say, as often as you utter the corporate amen, you proclaim and affirm the truth. We proclaim. It gives weight to the truth. It adds the testimony of the two or three witnesses to confirm that truth in the assembly. It's like us saying, yes, we affirm this truth. That's what it is. Now, how can that be expected? How can that be a biblical thing if we're not united in what the truth is? You can't say amen if you don't know the truth, or if the things that are coming from the pulpit are not truth. Because God has given us doctrine, and because doctrine defines who we are as Christians, then the unity that we're aiming at must be substantially doctrinal. So let me say it from this point. I'm not talking about anything under any circumstances that says, well, we need to set aside truth so that we can get along. That, that, that is, that's never the goal. Apart from the non-negotiable objective, objective doctrinal teaching of the Bible, we don't have any unity, and unity should never be sought which compromises the truth. So there you have 
the first half of, of my definition. The corporate pursuit, this is unity, the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony flowing naturally from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. This unity that we're talking about, it, it is corporate. That means it encompasses the whole congregation. It is a pursuit, a lifelong aspiration and labor for the whole congregation. And this unity is doctrinal. It's defined and bounded by the objective truth of God's Word. Now, three quick points of application. The first, if this unity encompasses the whole congregation, then there might be some here who have effectively excused themselves from this. You've, you've pushed away from the table and you've said, that's not really my thing. Well, I would encourage you to consider what steps need to be taken to rejoin the ranks of this corporate pursuit of unity. Beginning first with, with praying and saying, Lord, I've been lazy. I've been negligent. Forgive me. Open my eyes to how I can be more diligent to pursue unity. It can be as simple as a conversation with somebody that maybe you don't converse with very much. That simple. A, way that, a step you can take. Number two, if this unity is a lifelong pursuit, there might be some here that are growing weary who've worked hard or worked and worked and, and maybe you're ready to throw in the towel. You say, I'm just ready to give this over to everybody else. Y'all have fun with it. I've tried all I can try. I'm, I'm done. Well, you need to go to Christ with your weakness and ask Him to restore your strength, to renew your strength, to be strong in Him. He wants His body united and He will give us the strength to do it if we go to Him. Number three, if this unity is doctrinal, maybe there are some here who have absented themselves from the study of truth. The study of truth. Maybe you're here and you already know it all. Well, I would say surely we all need to be refreshed and reminded from time to time, even those of us here who already know it all. We, you need a refresher. You need to study. You might be here and you say, well, I'm, I'm more relationally geared. I'm not really a doctrine person. I'm just relational. Well, on what basis do you have relationships in the church that's different from your relationship with the clerk at Walmart? Uh, you know, I can talk to people and smile and I'm bubbly and we, we, we get along. Every time I see her, it's, hey, and we get along. We're, I'm relational. Well, that's, the church is more than that. In the church, we go beyond that. We should all be studying growing in our understanding of what the Bible teaches. Maybe at the lunch table today, wherever you are, whoever you're sitting with, you might ask this question. Hey, so what do we believe about? And then you fill in the blank. Whatever it is. And just talk about it. What, I mean, what, what do we really believe about justification by faith? What do we believe about regeneration? What... What do we, which, which do we believe comes first, regeneration or faith? Things like that. Now, you might sit there and say, well, we already know all of those answers. You'd be surprised how many might not know the answers to the questions that we could bring up. But it helps to keep the truth in constant circulation in our mouths and ears so that we understand we are agreeing. We are centering around the truth. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we should be doing that. 
We're the body of Christ and individually members of it. The same Lord who laid down His life for His bride at the cross also, we learn in Ephesians 5, nourishes and cherishes that same bride to this very minute, making intercession for His people. So how can we say, yes, I have taken up my cross. I'm following that Christ who bled for His bride, who nourishes and cherishes His bride, but I'm not really that concerned about the people in His bride. You're following a different Christ if that's your attitude. We need to ask that God would increase in all of us His own love for His people. The love that we are to love with is, is produced in us by Him. It's His love through us. So let's do that. Let's, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to help us. I'll read to you from Luke's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It says, When the hour came, He reclined at table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And as we come to the breaking of the bread, I'll remind you of what the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And that passage has been used many times historically to argue that the congregation should use one loaf because there's one Christ, one body. And so in the breaking of the bread, we remember Christ is one, one Christ, broken for us and for our salvation. Christ's body for us and for our salvation. His blood poured out for us. And yet there's a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So we take the time as the elements are passed to make confession of sin, to move quickly to the cross and what Christ has done for us, making sure that we're fixing our faith resting our souls upon what He has done alone. Not in the bread and the wine, not in the cup, not in the table itself, but in what it points us to. So let's do that and then we'll come to the table together.